As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and here to talk Americans abroad with me today is a man who could talk about that topic, but it also sounds like could also do some discussing of the MLS Western Conference. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. You've highlighted my two, maybe they're my two best skills. I appreciate you bringing those to the surface right off the top. What, Americans abroad and specifically the Western Conference, not the East? All right, Joe Lowry does not like the Eastern Conference. We're on record here. Cool. I mean, I've only ever lived in the Western half of the United States, so it kind of feels right to go with my Arizona bias, my natural Western bias. Have you been to the East Coast before? I have, yeah. No, I've spent time Have you time seen the Atlantic in, Ocean, Joe? I, I have seen the Atlantic Ocean, spent a little time in Florida um, and, uh, and a few other spots along um, the East Coast. So, yeah, no, no, I'm I'm a man of culture, Taylor. I'm a man of culture. <laughs> and yet you've been to Florida. Yeah. How are you feeling about the, the Western Conference of Major League Soccer uh, as we record, Joe? I feel okay about it. I went through and I've got a couple of pieces coming out for The Athletic over the next couple of days, one on each conference and in kind of 100-ish, 150 words on each team's tactics or what I think those tactics are going to be. And the Eastern Conference was pretty easy to write, even though there are a lot of new coaches coming in. I felt like I had a good grasp of how a lot of these teams, not all of them, but a lot of them were going to play. The Western Conference was a little bit a little bit harder to write. I it, it's It's fewer coaches, fewer new coaches coming into the West, but... A lot of teams that are in various states of roster turmoil and in squad building and just transition periods. I am not exactly sure where I stand on the West this year, and I'm excited to learn more about them as the actual season starts on Friday. If you were forced to make a selection, are you putting LAFC as your favorite, as the team most likely to finish top of the West? Absolutely, yeah. I don't, I don't know if that will yeah. happen, but they have the most talent. It's got to be LAFC as far as a preseason prediction goes. And how are you feeling, again, generally speaking, about FC Dallas? 
Dallas right now have, they're an exciting team for kind of what we're talking about today. Young Americans, they don't play abroad. Yep. They play here in, in the United States. But Dallas, that's the most obvious thing I've ever said on this show, which is really impressive. But Dallas <laughs> have a lot of that young talent this year. They have Jesus Ferreira. They have Tanner Tessman. They have, you know, a bunch of other young guys coming up through this group. And then that's not even including Paxton Pomichol, who's always a bit of a question mark now with his injury history, even for being such a young player. They have talent. They underwent a bit of an offensive regression last year under Luchi Gonzalez in his second year there. If they can bounce back and boost their passing numbers and their creation numbers, this could be one of the most fun teams to watch in MLS between their fun style of play and then between their actual roster of, of kids. And having lost two right backs in fairly short order, <laughs> do they have a right back or are they going to start like a 12-year-old from the academy? No, they have a couple different options at right back. They have Ryan Hollingshed who can play on that side. They have Eddie Munjoma who could I think I think is more or less the favorite to start in that role. I'm not exactly sure what Luigi has been doing in preseason, but they have at least two, if not three, different options. The right back pipeline is deep, Taylor Rockwell. All right. Well, they've they've moved on Reggie Cannon and they've uh, moved on Brian Reynolds as well, who we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about a few different Americans who were in action this past weekend in Europe. But we normally do that by sort of dividing up the players. I'll take three. Joe will take three or I'll take four. Joe will take four. Today, we're going to be talking about one player in common, and that one is Brian Reynolds, who gets the start for Roma this past weekend in a 1-0 win over Bologna. Uh, Joe, we've both watched uh, at least decent chunks of that game. Uh, I will admit I watched the whole thing this morning. I was definitely fast-forwarding through at times. As soon as the ball went out of play, I was fast-forwarding because it was not the most fun game to watch, even with Brian Reynolds' debut. Were you more optimistic? Did you have a better time with it, or did you find yourself also clicking that fast-forward button a couple times? I did click through the fast forward button a few times. It wasn't the most exciting game, Attaboy. right? From a Roma perspective, I'm all about maximizing my time, Taylor. Come on. I, it wasn't the most <laughs> exciting game for, for Roma. They didn't have a ton of the ball. They didn't move the ball super well when they did have it. And then from a Brian Reynolds perspective, offensively, and I think we'll talk more about his defensive contributions in a minute, but offensively, he did the thing that we see a lot of younger Americans do and just young players in general do when they break into the first team and then they actually get a start. This was Brian Reynolds' first ever Serie A start. He played more timid. It took him until the second half to actually yeah. try to go 1v1 and beat a defender, to beat the opposing left back for Bologna or to, to blow past their left-sided midfielder, the left wing or whatever. It took him a while to actually become a little bit more aggressive in the attack. And even when he did get a little more aggressive, it was just that, a little bit more aggressive. So there wasn't a ton of flash or a ton of, of offensive firepower from Roma or from Brian Reynolds in this game, which, yeah, add up to make it a kind of eh, game to watch. <laughs> well, I think, first of all, Joe, you're wise to point out that this was not a great performance overall from Roma. I think they had only four of their normal 11 starters playing, Mancini, yeah. Perez, Diawara, and Bruno Perez. Uh, they've got the second leg of the Europa League game against Ajax coming up, so they wanted to rest some people, which is probably why Brian Reynolds come in or comes into this one. Uh, and then I think you're right, because you have that rotation, you don't have the familiar faces doing the familiar things, it felt more disjointed, it felt slower, and it felt like... Several players, not just Reynolds, were having to be told what to do or sort of figuring things out as the game went along. And I'm with you, Joe, that I think he does look more confident. He does get into it a bit more in the, especially in the second half. But in the opening seven minutes, I had him basically getting exposed on a 2v1, then getting beaten on a 1v1 defensively, and then trying a 1v1 from an attacking standpoint and immediately losing the ball. It was not the strongest start to a game I've seen from a young player. 
No, and I took notes of some of those same things in the first five, ten minutes. Reynolds yep. Reynolds kind of got picked on a little bit in this game by Bologna, and I don't know if that was intentional or if they just kind of happened into that and then maybe realized for the second half, hey, this guy's a little bit defensively vulnerable. And I, I guess I want to pause here quickly and say yep. we're going to talk about a lot of things that can improve, that Brian Reynolds can get better at because – he was back defending so much, and that's never been a strong suit of his game with FC Dallas. And so we're going to talk about a lot of things that he can work on or a lot of things that we notice that can improve. I want to be clear. Brian Reynolds is still such a talented player. He got his U.S. debut, U.S. Men's National Team debut in March. He's on an upward trajectory, and the fact that Paolo Fonseca thinks he's he's ready to start a game, even with a rotated side, yes, I get that. That's a good sign. So overall, my takeaway from this game is positive because Brian Reynolds played. But to get into the nitty-gritty stuff, there were some issues with his performance, right? Defensively, especially, I think he was caught flat-footed too often. There was a moment in the fifth minute, I sent this to you, Taylor, I believe, he got beaten by mm-hmm. Bologna's left-back Mitchell Dykes, and then that happened because he was just totally flat-footed. His momentum, you know, he, he kind of w- went up a little bit onto almost the balls of his feet and then couldn't get back quickly enough, or maybe he was back on his heels. I'm not a, I'm not a you know, foot expert here, but he got blown by in that moment and a couple of others in this game and had to use his speed, which is a skill he does have to recover. So it's those little defensive moments from a technical standpoint that I think are, are fair things to critique and things to watch for down the line. So let's break that into a couple parts. Then first of all, as you said, maybe one V one defending, not the strongest part of his game, but in that move to Roma initially, if a Roma journalist is contacting you and saying, what's this guy about? If a Roma fan wants to know, what are we getting? What are the sort of skills that you think he's bringing in that you you don't have as many concerns about? If you are worried about the 1v1 defending, what are the kind of strong points that you would uh, show people when it comes to Brian Reynolds? He's a great athlete. He's a phenomenal athlete. He's got top-end speed. He's really quick. He's really fast. And, and we only see that come out in certain parts of his game. We don't see that come out as much in his 1v1 defending. His footwork isn't at that level yet. But when he's able to go downhill, and, and I think he's a good fit for that right wing back spot because of his speed, he can blow by you, he can get in behind, and he can find space in behind your back line. So his athleticism is a big one. And then his ability on the ball, I think we saw it in moments in this game, Taylor, and maybe you noticed this, maybe not, because there, there weren't a ton of them. But Reynolds did play some nice passes in this game out of pressure. He would be more of a standard right back and build up and then play the ball forward down the line. And I, th- I thought he provided some good service from that spot. And then in the attacking half as well, he had a nice little switch of play and transition in this game as well. I believe that was in the second half. He has some skill on the ball. He's really good at getting to the end line and whipping a ball back low across the box, almost like a Manchester City cutback. So his athleticism and then his ability on the ball in either tight spots or when he breaks in behind the back line, I think those are his two best skills right now. And that was true back when he moved in January or whenever that was. So then let's talk about, that's very good information to know, and with that in mind, let's talk about some of the moments in this game that stood out, because you've mentioned that he was flat-footed for that initial 1v1, that there are moments when he looked a little bit uncertain, a little bit not quite sure where he needed to be defensively, and then I think also you're right, that he did look decent playing the ball down the line but I think his passing percentage was okay it was in the 70s I think but I also saw a lot of those passes go out of bounds or just sort of lead to loose ball 50-50 scraps and I want to stay with that one for a moment because well maybe there's an argument of like oh no he's got to play that better in defeat or maybe it could be a better hit ball I think that is an example where the the style that the team wants to play and the instructions from the coach are the larger issue because he's clearly been told 
if there's any pressure on, don't play it central. Don't like misplay a pass through the middle. And now you've given Bologna or whoever the opponent may be an attacking opportunity. We always want you. If it's, uh, if it's Mancini on the ball, he plays it to you, Brian Reynolds. We want you to play that ball down the line. And it was almost that sort of automatic rotation that I think if you're the opponent, you're going to start to notice and recognize, Oh, that's how they want to play out every single time. So I will then aggressively block that off. So I noticed it because it kept happening and I kept wondering like, why, do they keep trying to force this when it, it isn't working as much, especially as the game goes on? And I think the answer is when a thing keeps happening and maybe it's working, maybe it's not, but they persist with it. To me, that pretty much clearly says the coach has told them to do that. So I don't have as much of an issue with his playing out of the back as I thought I might. His positioning, on the other hand, maybe I do. W- what did you make of the way he was sort of tracking different runners, keeping his positioning, tucking inside on occasion? Did you like what you saw? Um, yes and no. I think when I first mm-hmm. watched this game, I thought, man, Brian Reynolds is everywhere. He's stepping like crazy. He's stepping too far out. But then I, I thought about it a little bit more and thought about how Fonseca set up this team. So defensively, they were set up in a 5-2-3. And correct me or interrupt at any point, Taylor, if I get something wrong or if you saw something different. But I'm going to try to lay the foundation here. They set up in a 5-2-3, which has little gaps on on the outside of each side of the double pivot. And those are natural spaces for Bologna, whoever the attacking team is, to, to attack into and to move into. So Brian Reynolds' role, I thought, and it took me a minute to figure this out watching the game, was to step forward to provide almost another another midfielder in that line for Roma. He would step forward and almost transition Roma's defensive shape into a 4-4-2 with one of the other players stepping or dropping on the other side to provide uh, the fourth man in that line. And so he would step forward, and sometimes, and you sent me a clip like this, Taylor, he stepped forward in the wrong moments when the cover was already there and he didn't need to be the player to provide that cover. But in other moments, I thought he actually did his job really well and stepped forward at the right time, pressured. He had cover behind him. He still had that line of four, the three center backs plus plus the weak side wing back. He could step forward into midfield and provide a safe cover for his central midfield teammates and then drop back in the right time. So I thought it was a mixed bag from Reynolds defensively, positioning-wise. What did you see, Taylor? I saw, at least in the first maybe 20 minutes, I saw a lot of when Bologna were attacking down the left-hand side, it was uh, Dykes as their left back. They were in a 4-2-3-1. It was Barrow on the kind of left wing spot, and then uh, Svanberg as the left-sided central midfielder. Palacio also coming over. He was more the number nine, but they would occasionally have four players on that left side, usually more so two or three, and that was where I saw sometimes Brian Reynolds doing a good job of dropping Vic like far back, as you said, into that back five and holding the position, making Bologna have to kind of play through the middle because the channels are covered. But then I did also see him tracking a runner that maybe didn't necessarily need to be tracked or trying to split the difference. If Dykes, Dykes is on the ball, Barrow has come over to support. I would see Brian Reynolds not kind of like move over to Barrow to show Dykes down the line, but also like almost try to stand between them, but off. And so in doing that, it's basically like he's the bottom of a triangle of like a right triangle. So now Dykes can play into Barrow, can maybe dribble forward a little bit or can hit a long ball into the channel for Palacio if he's making that diagonal run. And those moments of indecision 
stood out to me in those first 20 minutes because they kept happening. And it's why he gets beat. I think he's flat-footed because he doesn't know, am I supposed to step or am I supposed to be tracking a runner? It's why he gets flat caught flat-footed later on is because there's an easy wall pass on because he's not sure exactly where he needs to be. And yeah, you're right. That clip I sent you in the second half, he gets a talking to from Gonzalo Villar, who's, yeah. who is marking Barrow in that space. And then suddenly Brian Reynolds is there, but now there's a ton of space behind and there's space out wide. And you can see uh, VR turn and point and be like, no, over, go back, go back. And it's not that big of a problem because he's a young player and this is a, a new thing for him. It's a new experience. He's getting his footing. But it did... It was the type of thing that I feel like I kept seeing it with the regularity enough that I was more concerned about it than like, oh, I see him solving the problem. I see him winning it. That pass isn't on as much. But I might – There's a, honestly, there was a chance that I wasn't looking for that as much as maybe you were. So were there moments then, especially as the game went on, that you saw him winning a ball or forcing Bologna back into a different kind of attacking approach? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Not a ton of them. But enough moments to make me think, okay, he understands, Brian Reynolds understands the general idea of what he's trying to do, and he's still trying to to actually put it into practice and get it from his brain to his feet. He's yeah. learning this role. This is hard, right, Taylor? I mean, it's taken us at least five minutes to talk through what this role was, whereas oftentimes yeah. if you're playing just as a straight-up right back or like he was with Dallas, your job and Brian's Reynolds, Brian Reynolds' job under Luchi Gonzalez defensively was basically just play right back, defend it in your space and do what he knows how to do and, and what he did playing for the USL team and in other situations like that. Now the defensive role is totally different, and I'm sure he's worked on it in training. But this is complicated, man. This is complicated stuff. It's very situational. It's not a hard and fast rule every time of you step and then you drop after three seconds and, and you go close down your man here. It's very fluid. And so for that reason, like you said, Taylor, we're not – we're not going crazy about this, right? He's such a young player, and this is a hard job that he had in this game. I think it's notable to see how he played and how he fit into that role and how he will do that in his next appearance for Roma. But certainly the sky isn't falling because Brian Reynolds you know, couldn't quite figure out his positional role in this game. Yeah. Okay. I think, I think that's where maybe we can, we can land on, or at least where I, I can maybe feel a little bit better. Because I, I will say, I think I saw a few tweets or a few messages about how he looked really bad. He looked awful. He couldn't complete a pass. And maybe that was sort of giving me some bias going in. But I do think a lot of the notes I have are positional. Like he was too far inside. And so there was a player open at the back post or he dropped off too much and then left space for a lateral pass. And I think. If you look at all those, it's sort of not seeing the forest for the trees. If you look at each of those as an individual tree, you're like, oh, man, there's a lot of trees here. But when you back up a little bit and you look at it again, I think you're right that it's a really complicated thing he's being asked to do. And he's figuring it out and he's dealing with an opponent who themselves are figuring it out and then trying to adjust accordingly. And I think it does make it really hard if you don't have the sharpness, if you don't have the familiarity. And that is a thing I would expect from him as we go forward. So maybe some of that positioning is a little bit better. Maybe there isn't that sort of open opportunity opportunity at the back post, which did happen again two or three times in the first 30 minutes. Maybe you don't have as much of that because he knows where he needs to be in relation to that uh, that left center back or that right center back or where he needs to be to make sure that this pass isn't on, but also that long ball isn't on. I think we'll probably see him get more comfortable. And so a lot of this was growing pains, trying to kind of figure it out and then accelerate the decision making. And as long as he's able to keep doing that or do more of that, I, I don't have many concerns about Brian Reynolds at Roma so far. 
Are there things that you'd like to see Reynolds work on from this game? I mean, he's only played just over 100 minutes right now with Roma. Are there things that you want to see him build on from this performance whenever he gets another start? Because Roma have Europa League games still, or even if they, they crash out against Ajax, they still have a congested Serie A schedule. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that we see more of Brian Reynolds over the next week or two. Yeah, and and, and so I think that there are certainly things that I would like to see him do more of or ways he could improve. But I also think it might be unfair to say, like, this is what I want to see him do next time because I don't know if it's possible. But, yeah, it's gonna for example, time. Bruno... Br- yeah, but Bruno Perez, who's playing as the left wing back for Roma in this game, it was noticeable to me that when the ball goes wide to him, there are a couple stepovers and he's trying to beat somebody. There's driving with pace down t- towards the end line to get across it or to get a cut back in. And it was a lot of instinctive play and very quick decision making. And I contrast that with Brian Reynolds, who when he would get the ball, you could sort of see the half second and then be like, right, okay, I'm going to dribble. And then he would dribble. And you could see the decision making happening. And I always talk about how like playing with instinct, not having to think about what you're doing is the best possible way to play. Because as soon as you think, oh, I should play that pass. Oh, but he's kind of covered. I hope I can play that pass. I'll try it anyway. I think you're putting in all these factors and conditions and you're sort of doubting yourself before you've even made the play. And so like there's one in the second half when he goes for just a square ball and he underhits it. Uh, I think it's uh, he's aiming for Diawara, who gets there but gets taken out uh, legally, and then it's a good attacking opportunity from Bologna. And it's and it's a combination of underhitting the pass because I think he paused to think about what he needed to do, but then it's also the pausing itself is a problem, especially against a team that Bologna. I wouldn't say we're high high pressing, but against a team that does, it's going to be that much more obvious when he is slowing it down and taking his time. And so I I would like to see him just get a little bit faster with some of those passes, a few one and two touch plays. And that's uh, to your initial statement of like a thing we've seen Americans do when they're learning how to fit into the system. Like, I think that's a thing that he could do is play one and two touch passes, but make sure those passes are good. And then as you get the confidence of I've completed a pass, I've completed another pass. Now I'll try a step over. Now I'll try this. I think once you justify some of the risk taking or once you sort of believe that you're able to successfully take those risks, I think you do it more often. And I think that he started this game by getting beaten in a 2v1, getting beaten in a 1v1, losing his mark at the back post. I don't think that let him have the confidence he needed. So basically, I just want to see more confidence and him looking like he is a more comfortable part of that starting 11 if and when he's in there. I totally agree. Improving his offensive speed of play, just seeing him, seeing him grow more comfortable out there. And then I also just want to add, I'm curious to see how he continues to establish himself as that right wing back in terms of his defensive positioning. Does he learn the role a little bit better? Is the role the same for him in another game? Were the tactics just for this game against Bologna or will he have to do something similar down the line? And then the biggest thing for me is just watching how his defensive ability 1v1 or even in 2v1s how that continues to develop because that's been an issue for him ever since he broke in with Dallas. It still is. That's understandable. He's 19, but I'm always going to be watching that. Just like we're always paying attention to that kind of thing with Sergio Dest too, right? That's an important skill for a fullback. I'm curious to see how he continues to work on that part of his game. All right. Well, more on Sergio Dest and many other Americans uh, in just a little bit. But first, Joe, you ready to take a break to hear from today's sponsors? I'm so ready. <laughs> All right, let's do it. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. 
Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back, Joe. Since you mentioned Serginho Dest, I will take us to Serginho Dest. Let's talk about his performance, such as it was, uh, starting at right back for Barcelona in their 2-1 to loss in El Clasico. Uh, he was, as I said there, uh, taken off at halftime. I'll talk about why that happened. We'll talk about some of the goals as well, or at least one of the goals in particular. Uh, I've already talked about this game, though, on the weekend review, uh, Mr. Lowry. Uh, for you, seeing Serginho Dest start in a Clasico, was that a, a pretty big moment for you? How hyped were you to see him playing for Barcelona against Madrid? Man, it's awesome. It's so cool, right? We talked about this when he first moved to Barcelona. It still feels a little surreal. surreal excuse me. And it's getting more normal mm-hmm. to think, okay, Sergio Dest at Barcelona, Christian Pulisic at Chelsea, Giorena. I mean, the list goes on, right? It, that's getting more normal, which is weird in and of itself. But a moment like this in El Clasico, it kind of takes you out and, and makes you look and makes me look more at the macro big picture stuff. This is crazy, and it's awesome that he started in this game. I wish it would have gone a little bit differently, but still, such a cool milestone for Sergio Dest. It was. It was. Maybe, as yeah, not one that he will necessarily love remembering since sure. it finishes with a loss and him being out at halftime. But let's talk about what Barcelona were trying to do. Uh, if you'll permit me to go on hopefully not too long of a monologue, um, they are in the back three that we've come to expect from them. A sort of 3-2-1, 3-1-2, depending on how you want to look at what Pedri and uh, Messi were doing. But Dest is there as the right wing back. Uh, Real Madrid come out in their 4-3-3, their customary 4-3-3, defense Ending in theoretically a 4-5-1, but I would argue it was more of a 5-4-1. And though that sounds like semantics or maybe being overly detailed, I think it's really, really important to what Madrid did defensively, which was drop in Valverde to sort of a right wing back. He becomes essentially the fifth defender. Lucas Vasquez becomes another center back. And now between Mendy and Valverde, you have the channels covered, but then you have three defenders deep and central. Uh, they then, I think, had Luka Modric pre- pressuring whoever was responsible for the build-out, especially when one of the center backs for Barcelona would stride forward to create an overload. That's when Modric would step, and the entire goal seemed to be force Madrid central, don't let them have any opportunities out wide, don't let them create any overloads out wide. They don't really do that in the first first half they do in the second half and that is literally where the goal comes from so I think Madrid's game plan was to nullify the effectiveness of those wingbacks to the extent that the big question I think at halftime was why with the way Madrid have approached this have Barcelona persisted with a back three if they're only going to have Kareem Benzema as the outlet or only have Vinicius as the outlet why keep those numbers back you're effectively hamstringing yourself if you're Barcelona. And that is, I think, a thing that Ronald Koeman would agree with because that is why Sergio Des comes out in my mind. Antoine Griezmann comes on, Barcelona in more of a back four. Jordi Alba is never going to be the one to make way. And I think Oscar Mengiza, because of what he offers defensively and I guess attacking wise, because he scores a goal, 
role, it makes sense to keep him on. So Dest is the natural one to be sacrificed. So I assumed it was, oh, he was so bad he got pulled, even watching this game, because I didn't really remember him aside from one big moment. But watching it again, it's really not that. It's just that Madrid's game plan has completely nullified the threat of those wingbacks. So they had to change it up, and he was the one who had to make way. Yeah, that's really good analysis, Taylor. We talked about how Barcelona struggled to break down a five-at-the-back shape a couple weeks ago when they just barely beat uh, a team in La Liga one to nothing. I think, with a very late goal. I can't remember who the opponent was, but yep. it was recently. And it's a similar issue here, right? It's hard to break down a back five. It's really hard to break down any sort of detailed defensive structure if it's executed properly. And so the change from Ronald Koeman makes sense to me. You take out Dest, you have a little bit more of a defensive option in Mingiza back to deal with Madrid because they're still a hugely dangerous attacking team, a counterattacking team, you know, in a number of different situations. You change your own shape to try to better exploit weaknesses in the other shape. All of that reasoning makes sense, and it's it's a good explanation by you to pinpoint that, yeah, this wasn't just on Dest for having a shocker of a first half. I would say, though, he doesn't help himself uh, <laughs> with the second goal for Real Madrid, which is uh, a free kick taken by Tony Cruz. It deflects. It goes in just over Jordi Alba's head. Uh, I would also add Dest not really playing a part in the first goal for Madrid and is not responsible for the foul that leads to this free kick. But he is doing something strange when the kick is taken. He's not in the wall. He is maybe a yard or two over from it to the left-hand side of the wall if they're facing the taker. I'm going to assume that maybe there was a Madrid player standing in between or there was something else that happened, but there is this sort of gap that opens up, and I think that's what Tony Cruz is aiming for. He misses, but hits Serginho Dest, who uh, has now jumped and turned his back. I would call that the DeAndre Yedlin special, because I think he got two <laughs> different red cards doing that exact thing. And... We've talked about it in the past, it's not what you're supposed to do. You don't turn your back if you're going to jump. You don't necessarily have to jump, but if you do, you've got to be able to see what the ball is doing, not just because it might careen, careen off your back and go into the goal, but because if you're not seeing it and you turn all the way around, maybe it hits your elbow, maybe your arm is outstretched because of the physics of jumping and it hits your hand. So you want to be tracking the ball the whole way so you know that you're not going to have any sort of infraction that's going to be punished with a penalty, but you certainly don't want to rotate and turn your back completely such that you have no idea where you're, you are in relation to the shot being taken, and then it hits off your back. So if you're Ronald Koeman and you're undecided, like, maybe I want to leave Mengiza on, maybe it's Serginho Dest, and then that moment happens, I think that's probably the nail in the coffin of Dest's first half performance. I mean, Taylor, we could just have, or we could start a, peti a petition to have Serginho Dest be the guy mm -hmm. who lays behind the wall. For every That'd game down the line, just so we avoid any other situations like this where he might jump and turn and deflect the ball. I think that would solve this problem. Yep. Yeah, I think that's all we need. All right, so <laughs> we'll, we'll make him the mandatory uh, layer layer downer. I, I don't know what that term is. We'll have to come up with that. Uh, but until we do, Joe, anything else you wanted to talk about from Barcelona 1, Real Madrid 2? Not a thing for me. All right. Uh, yeah, so not a, a terrible performance for Serginho Serginio Dest, but certainly not a great performance for Barcelona. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on what Dest is doing with them. Who else should we be keeping an eye on uh, from this weekend, Joe? Man, it's Gio Reyna time. He started and had an All assist right. for Borussia Dortmund in their 3-2 win over Stuttgart in the Bundesliga on Saturday. Taylor, Gio Reyna was Awesome. He was so active on that right wing, dangerous on the dribble, drawing fouls, combining, playing dangerous passes. I sent you some of his clips, and he was, I mean, he was so, so good on that right wing for Dortmund in a way that we haven't been, uh, we haven't seen him be that good in a long time for them. 
it was it was pretty good from top to bottom. Like it was tight control. It was good passing. It was good defensive work when the situation required. It, it was fight. It was physicality. Yeah, it was one of the stronger performances that I can remember from Gio Reyna of late. Yeah, so he had an assist in the 47th minute, and I'll, I'll walk us through that briefly before getting to another moment or two that I thought was even more impressive than the assist. But the, the moment comes, the moment from Gio Reyna comes when Dortmund are attacking down their left wing. Reyna's playing on the right, so it's opposite of him. Modahoud plays the ball into Reyna in the box. It's a nice low ball on the floor into Gio Reyna. And Gio Reyna, with his first touch, and even before he's played that ball with his first touch, sees that Jude Bellingham is kind of just hanging out at the top of the box, right at the edge of the 18. And Reyna just balances the ball back to Jude Bellingham, who scores with his second touch, I believe it was. It's great vision from Gio Reyna to see that, okay, yeah, I could probably turn here and maybe beat a defender and, and get a shot on goal. But if I laid this ball off with my first touch, Bellingham's going to be wide open and he's going to be able to do something better with his first or second touch than I could do with my first or second touch. So it's a great decision making from Reyna. Great vision. But yeah, I mean, again, this wasn't even his best play or at the very least, it was one of his better plays on the day. He had so many really impressive moments. He combined with Jude Bellingham on the right side in the 18th minute. Matt Hummels played a long switch out to Reyna. Reyna then drew a Stuttgart player out of their defensive shape, absorbed contact, dealt with a player on his back, turned, slipped Bellingham down the right side, combined. It was it was gorgeous stuff, Taylor, from Gio Reyna for pretty much his entire appearance for Dortmund. And this is a Dortmund team that have not had the consistency that we would have liked. Certainly they would have liked uh, coming off of two losses and a draw. To get this win feels like it could be good. Did you see overall a more like i don't know heightened performance from dortmund did you see them responding do you feel more confident in them getting maybe that final uh champions league spot currently seven points behind eintracht frankfurt yeah it's it's a tough situation for them in the league right now their results have been so inconsistent this season having them having them jump into that fourth spot is going to be really tough but i will say between this game and between the man city performance last week in the champions league It's been a nice couple of last results for Dortmund. Yes, I know they lose to Manchester City, but we talked about it. They did so many things well in that game. They really, they caused Manchester City some problems. And if that call on Jude Bellingham had gone a different way, that result might have looked entirely different. I think Edin Terzic has come across a more consistent tactical, at least an offensive style. It's usually a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3. It's kind of flexible in that way with Jude Bellingham as a 10 slash 8. So sometimes he'll be up high almost underneath Erling Holland with freedom to rotate wide. Other times he'll be a little bit deeper and it'll be Bellingham, Delaney, and Dahoud in more of a midfield three with 1-6 and Bellingham as one of the two number eights. That approach seems to be working. Yeah, there was a really bad mistake from Mori in this game to let Stuttgart get back into this one after Dortmund had already gone down early. They equalize, then they, you know, they get a second goal and then Stuttgart draws level in the 78th minute. But overall, if you take that mistake away and look at what Dortmund did with the ball, they were solid in this game and Giorena was a big part of that. All right. And in terms of Giorena, what were your favorite uh, other moments that we haven't yet talked about from him? Yeah, there there were so many in this game that I just gave up on clipping them and sending them to you. So <laughs> I've only got one more that I'm really going to detail here. The 21st minute, Gio Reyna gets on the ball on the right wing again. This time it's a little narrower. On that 18th minute clip with the Mats Hummels long switch out, Reyna was wide and then drew the player out and combined and slipped Jude Bellingham in behind, or at least, you know, down that right wing. In this moment, Reyna's a little bit more central. He's in that half space that we often see Reyna occupy for the U.S. men's national team. 
So Guerrero plays the ball forward to Reyna. Reyna's now inside, and uh, he plays the ball inside even further to Thomas Delaney and then darts forward. It's a simple one-two to isolate himself against Stuttgart's left wing back, Borna Sosa. Sosa's out of position. Reyna's beaten him for, for pace down that right side in the final third. And Sosa has to foul Reyna because Reyna's good at delivering that low cross into the box from that little area just outside the box. So Sosa brings Reyna down and Dortmund get a free kick. Taylor, it was those kinds of moments that we saw from Gio Reyna over and over in this game. He was consistently better than the opposing defender, whether that was Sosa or someone else, in terms of 1v1 duels. He was fast. He contributed offensively. He counterpressed. There was, I, I feel like I'm being overly positive on Gio Reyna, but I think this performance was so refreshing from him that it reminded me of just how good of a player he can be. Yeah, because I watched this after I saw Brian Reynolds play. And I think that's one of those things where you watch a player at a certain level and you think like, okay, they're doing fine. And then you watch a player at a different level and you realize like, oh, no, that's what fine looks like. And this (laughs) did stand out to me. Obviously, different positions, obviously more experienced with first experience with first team play in Europe with Gio Reyna. But it was just a confidence to take people on that he, he kind of fought and, and like scrapped for every single thing that if he got into a challenge, he wasn't backing off. And there was a hesitance to, or hesitation to the way Brian Reynolds went into certain challenges and the way he would step that I think we just didn't see from Reyna. And I think that is certainly him having more minutes as a professional and more training in that system to be aggressive in the way he's playing. But it just, that he played so aggressively, but with such confidence and speed, I, I think you're absolutely right to praise him as much as you are. And I've been all aboard the Tim Weah for the starting right wing spot with the U.S. Men's National Team train for pretty much this whole season, or at least the second half of this season. Gio Reyna is making that conversation really complicated right now because he is getting minutes with with Dortmund and now he's using them productively, or at least he did over the weekend. And then with the national team, which is way more important than how these guys are looking for their clubs, with the national team, Gio Reyna had one, I think he had two largely good games. They weren't perfect performances against Jamaica and Northern Ireland, but he did a lot of things well in those games. And Tim Weah, by not being in that camp, that's a hard situation for him because now I think Taylor Gio Reyna has the inside track to be playing at that spot and to be the default starter at that spot when they get the full group together, likely for Nations League in June. So I don't know that the right winger depth chart now is a little bit murkier for me than I thought it was a couple of months ago. And, and maybe that's foolish because it, it might just be that Gio Reyna is the out and out starter. If he has the inside track right now, or if he is maybe the out and out starter, what from this game or generally speaking, would you like to see him continue to do? Like, what are the skill sets that you think he can bring in that maybe we haven't seen from him? What are the takeaways from this game that next time he plays, you want to see more of? You want to make sure that that's a thing he's doing consistently. This is a theme that carried over from the March window of friendlies against Jamaica, and Northern Ireland. And I talked about it in one of the moments that I walked us through. It's Reyna's sturdiness on the ball and his ability to keep a man yeah. on his back and then play out. We saw that against Jamaica. We saw that against Northern Ireland. And we saw that in this game against Stuttgart. That's something I'd love to continue to see. Because Taylor, going back to Brian Reynolds for a moment, when Reynolds was playing right back when Roma was building up, he would try to play that ball down the line. But more often than not, the outlet on that side couldn't deal with pressure on his back. And they ended up losing the ball if the ball even got there in the first place. I think if Reynolds was passing to Gio Reyna, the percentage of passes that they complete on that right side goes up astronomically. Gio Reyna's stockiness, his sturdiness, and his ability to deal with that pressure from behind 
that's one of the things that he does best, I think, for Dortmund and with the U.S. national team. So I absolutely want to see that. I want to see him continue to beat players 1v1 in the final third and then either get a shot on goal himself or or play the ball into the box as a cutback for Sargent or for Weston McKinney crashing the box in situations like that. I think his ability in the final third to be creative and to make things happen is another really important skill. And then his counterpressing. His ability to win the ball after after Dortmund or after the U.S. loses it is huge. When he's turned on and when he's willing to go and do that defensive work, I think he's a phenomenal counterpresser. So, man, those are three things that we are seeing from Gio Reyna right now that I would love to continue seeing from him with the U.S. men's national team. Sturdiness is not a word that we usually use to describe soccer players, but maybe it should be because that is what you want. When you think of Lionel Messi, it's the, the ability to get back up after getting kicked for the 15th time in a game. That's sturdiness, but also that ability yeah, to keep the defender on your back, to handle the 50-50 physicality as you're running down the line. You got to be a little bit sturdy, and I think Gio Reyna has that, and let's hope we continue to see that. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. All in all, a good performance from him, a very good performance from him. I'm excited to see whenever he gets his next minutes, maybe in the Champions League later this week as we're recording on Tuesday, or maybe it's next weekend. Regardless, uh, Giorena's balling right now. All right. Giorena is balling right now. That seems like a fitting note to end this segment on. We'll be back to hear about two more American ballers in just a second. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe, uh, final section, but we've got a big performance to break down because oh, we yeah. have two goals from Christian Pulisic for Chelsea in their 4-1 to win over Crystal Palace. Uh, and I want to start off ba- with just kind of the basics because he is in that sort of front three for Chelsea that we've come to see. And it's his third straight start in the Premier League for them, which is not a thing that we were saying uh, fairly recently. So it does. I did like the commentators on more than one occasion referred to him as a like consistent starter for Chelsea, which was a nice thing to hear when said <laughs> yeah. in relation to the name Christian Pulisic. Um, in terms of what Chelsea were doing, it's sort of what Barcelona were trying to do to Madrid, only uh, only in this case Chelsea were able to do it because with Joel and Hudson-Odoi as your two wingbacks and them really advancing into the attack, you end up getting more of a 3-2-5 shape for Chelsea, which allows Mount and Pulisic to be more central. It allows them to switch positions to overload one side. Sometimes Pulisic's on the right with Mount. Sometimes they're both on the left. Sometimes one is on the left, one is on the right. But that variability, I think, makes it really, really hard for defenders to track everybody and feel really comfortable in what they're doing. And I think Pulisic then is aware of that indecision, is aware of that uncertainty from some of the Palace defenders. It's a big reason why he is so wide open for his first goal is because he recognizes that no one is really tracking me. There's a little gap that's opened up between the the back line and the midfield. I'm going to stay in it. I'm not going to go 
sprinting towards the near post. I'm not going to recycle my run to the far post. He kind of holds up, gets gets the ball cut back to him pretty pretty expertly by Kai Havertz. And we have a goal for Christian Pulisic, which made me very, very happy. Joe, for you seeing Christian Pulisic get a brace and start his third straight game, does it get any better for him at Chelsea? Is it basically going to take him winning the Premier League or winning the Champions League? Yeah, I mean, both of those things would be great. This is This is the closest that Christian Pulisic has been to the version of himself that we saw after the Premier League started up last year in Project Restart. He is playing at maybe not the same level as he was then, but he's playing at a very high level. I love, Taylor, that you highlighted his patience on the goal, on the first goal that he scores, Mm -hmm. right? He's just kind of hanging out. He's just doing his thing. He's not fussed about going to find the ball. He's not fussed about making all these ridiculous runs that he doesn't need to make. He stays patient. He stays in between a bunch of defenders, and he gets on the ball, and he finishes it off. It is... It's beautiful movement, and I, he does move a little bit, but it's almost beautiful non-movement from Christian Pulisic to stay where the space is and to wait for the ball. I thought he played really well in this game, Taylor. I mean, between him and Gio Reyna, the wingers for the U.S. Men's National Team player pool, man, they were on point this weekend. They were, and, and they were for uh, Chelsea as well, because I thought Mason Mount had another strong performance. Uh, he does not get a goal, but does get uh, an assist in there. Uh, and also, I think, allows Pulisic to play the way he wants to play, in that I think they both do similar things and uh, complement each other well, because they're both good on the ball. They can both kind of ping in those low crosses, but they can both pop up in different areas. And I liked that we saw Pulisic making near post runs. Uh, he scores one at the near post. He makes far post runs, scores one there too later on in the game. Sometimes it's hanging out at the penalty spot. Sometimes it's crashing uh, on the goalkeeper when a shot is taken. But I thought the variety of ways in which Pulisic was making his runs, where they were starting versus where they were ending up, it showed to me that with Chelsea, if there are patterns to the attack, then there are so many of them that he has learned them all really, really well, or in my mind, more likely, is that there is an awareness of like, I'm going to pop up here, I might pop up here, and there's, like, an ability to adapt on the fly that that attack has, and maybe hasn't had as much because you haven't had the consistency in who's starting and where. Maybe now that we're getting that at the Premier League, it's less surprising to me that those goals are are coming, that some of the crosses that previously were cut out or didn't find anybody are now finding specifically Christian Pulisic. So, uh, definitely happy on that one. Uh, also really impressed by two other little aspects of... His game, but Chelsea's game as a whole. The first would be that, uh, as I said, Pulisic is the sort of left-sided attacker in that 3-4-2-1. Ben Chilwell would be the left wing back there. And a couple different times in the first and second halves, I saw the two of them hunting together. That if you had uh, Jordan Ayew, excuse me, uh, like on the ball and he turns to play back towards goal, you would get Chilwell pressuring from the outside, Pulisic pressuring from the inside, and sort of really making it difficult for him to find anything and frequently forcing a turnover, forcing a bad pass that somebody else intercepts or just coughing the ball up cheaply and then they can attack from there. So I thought the relationship with Chilwell, uh, very, very strong in a way that I haven't seen from Pulisic in terms of we know he works really hard. I don't think we always get to see a lot of his defensive work, right? But that was on display, uh, at least in my mind in this game. Christian Pulisic, when he's up for it, and I guess this kind of goes for Gio Reyna too, is is a good defender. They're high-energy players, specifically Christian Pulisic. He's so quick, right? That's one of his best skills, I think, is how fast he is and how quick he is in tight little short sprints. If Christian Pulisic is uh, willing to defend and he's willing to be a part of the defensive structure around him, like we're seeing with Chelsea right now, 
He can be an asset on that side of the ball, Taylor, and I love how you brought that out from this game. One other thing I wanted to mention from this game before we move on, it's it's a not even specific to this game, but it definitely stood out, is how fast Chelsea move the ball. And that is one and two touch passing. It is moving it from one side to the other. But it's how much pace they put on the ball when that pass is struck. And the only analogy I can come up with is... Like, I've thrown a football with friends, and the way you throw and catch a football, it's like, ah, yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of, like, arc to it. It's not that much power behind it. If you've ever casually thrown a football with a person who has played competitive football, especially if they're a quarterback, (laughs) that ball is coming in with some zip on it. And it's going to make it sort of uncomfortable. It's going to make it hard to handle on occasion. And that is how I would describe the way Chelsea passed, that there is... Never an under-hit pass, or if there is, they're probably getting screamed at and forced to run shuttles, and that's why there's no under-hit pass. But everything is just pinged into feet, and you can hear it. Uh, with the the lack of uh, crowd noise, you can hear it on the mics, and it's a very, like, thump, thump, thump. The way that ball moves, it tells you how much pace is behind it, but that every single pass is... Maybe not every single pass, but more often than not, that that pass is controlled, brought down with a good first touch. I think it also shows you the intensity of the training and how Chelsea are then able to utilize those little tiny pockets of space to ping a ball in and then ping a ball out. And it doesn't really let the defense adapt quickly. And now they're reacting maybe two steps, two sequences too late to how quickly Chelsea are moving the ball. And that's fundamental to... At least the first goal for Pulisic. I think maybe his second one as well and a couple other goals in there too. So just the way Chelsea passed that ball, the crispness behind it is a thing that I'm not sure we've talked about, but I kept taking note of uh, from this game. And I'm guessing Crystal Palace did as well, just in a slightly more negative way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure Crystal Palace wasn't happy about that. Chelsea's <laughs> speed of play is huge, right? And we saw it against Porto. With They they took advantage of one defensive error from Porto and their inability to get back in transition and settle into their defensive block. And Chelsea took advantage of that. They switched the ball side to side. They moved it quickly. They've become really good at that under Thomas Tuchel. And that's a big part, I think, of why they're able to break down low blocks like Porto's, like Crystal Palace's. It's a huge asset for them in possession to be able to move the ball that quickly. All right, so positive times for Chelsea fans and certainly for Christian Pulisic, but we've talked about an American getting an assist. We've talked about an American getting some goals. Joe, I'm assuming that's going to end when we start talking about Weston McKinney because he's a midfielder who didn't even start this game. I'm sure he won't be scoring. Is that correct? I mean, Weston McKinney scoring goals? What? No, I mean, he scored another (laughs) one this weekend against Genoa. He did. He scored six in all competitions for Juve this season. He's tied for their fourth leading scorer on the season, Juve's fourth leading scorer. McKinney comes on for Kulisevsky in the 68th minute and scores just two minutes later. Taylor, if you're cool with it, I'm going to get right into that goal. Is that all right with you? Let's do it. Okay. Mm-hmm. 70th minute, Juve are in possession. Paulo Dybala's dropped in. Cristiano Ronaldo's dropped in. And that cues Weston McKenney to make that run forward. If you watch the highlight of this clip on Twitter, it looks like McKenney's just starting out as a nine. But he's not. He starts deeper in midfield as one of those central midfielders for Andrea Pirlo. And then he makes that run forward to to work off of Ronaldo. So at this point, McKinney's really, really high. Juve, wrote, Juve have rotated the ball over to their right side. I believe it's Danilo, but it's really hard to tell in the clip. I think Danilo's on that side, and he plays the ball into McKinney. McKinney bends his run behind the back line, stays onside thanks to Paolo Giglione. 
and beats that offside trap, gets on the ball, checks his shoulder, not to see, you know, defenders around him, but checks his shoulder to see the AR, to see whether he's onside or not. He is. He keeps going towards goal, deals with a little bit of pressure on his back as he shoots and finishes with his right foot. It's an easy goal for Weston McKenney, but I love the fact he's, he's kind of this fill-in player. He's this rotational player, not in his minutes necessarily, but in how he moves on the field. This all starts because he follows what Ronaldo does, and that's, that happens for McKenney in wide spaces. It happens on the right. It happens centrally. McKenney can pretty much go anywhere on the soccer field and be effective. Is the difference between this and Schalke, like Juve and Schalke, specifically just that Juve are very good and Schalke are very not. Like we had concerns about him being utilized all over the place. And sometimes he's an eight and sometimes he's a midfielder and sometimes he's a right back, but sometimes he's a support striker. It seems like Schalke used him everywhere. Juve are using him in a couple different spots, uh, as I've seen it, either on one side of midfield or the other, but maybe sometimes centrally. But obviously I don't have as big of an issue with that because it's Juventus and they, though it's not a very successful for season, season for them across the board, they're in third right now, they're out of the Champions League, but it's still Juve and there's still so many good players around him that I think for him to be able to kind of pop into games, maybe he starts one at left midfield, okay, but now he's subbing in at right midfield the next time and then maybe the week after that he's a central midfielder for like the first 68 minutes and then he goes and plays right midfield. It seems like he is able to do that and adjust it stands out in opposition to Brian Reynolds again, where you can see the wheels turning, you can see him trying to think, and there's a little bit of a delay between receiving the ball and moving the ball. I don't see that delay with Weston McKinney, even when he's being asked to play a couple different positions. So I'll go back to the age-old question of, am I just being too generous? Do I like Weston McKinney too much? Or do you think he is doing a good job doing those different roles? I think he's doing a really good job of doing those different roles. He's such a versatile player, yep. and and we saw that with Schalke. In some ways, that was a benefit, but in a lot of ways, it was a negative as well. Juve, in the situation with Juve, is different for a couple of reasons, I think. One, Juve is better, as you kind of led in with that, with that, you know, that question, Taylor. Juve just has more talent, but also, I think with Juve, there's a common thread between the different roles that McKenny plays. He has similar things to think about in his different roles. If he's playing on the right side of midfield, tucking inside, he's probably going to do the same thing on the left side of midfield, tucking inside. He's working with the, the ball side center back, the ball side wing back, and the forwards on that side to figure out what spaces he should occupy. And that goes for the right, that goes for the left. When he's playing in the middle, like he was for the first couple of minutes before he shifted out more towards the right side in this game off the bench, McKenney, you know, worked off of a forward. It's the same principle of working and shifting and almost teeter-tottering, seesawing with, with one player. If you go up, I go down. If you go this way, I go that way so that we stay out of each other's spaces and pull the defense apart. I don't think we saw that continuity between roles from McKenney when he was playing at Schalke under Tedesco no. or under whoever. Now with Juve, yeah, they're not having the season that they would have wanted to have. They, they're not knocked out of the Champions League. They're not dominating Serie A by any stretch. But we do see a general tactical identity from Andrea Pirlo, and that makes Weston McKenney's life a lot easier. It does. And it makes our life a lot easier when he scores goals. And uh, several other Americans do the same. It was a strong weekend overall for Americans abroad, Joe. So that feels like a good point to end upon, unless you have any other Americans you want to talk about or any other Weston McKinney things you wanted to spotlight. No, I'm quite content. Thank you, though. All right. I always want to extend the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> Joe and Ryan and Graham will be back tomorrow to talk about two days Champions League games. And then I will theoretically be back with Joe and Ryan on Thursday to do the same. Uh, Joe, anything else to plug? Anything else to talk about before we call it quits? 
I don't think so. There's plenty of soccer. UEFA Champions League, CONCACAF Champions League, MLS is starting. <laughs> we still have Americans abroad. There's oh, a lot going on, and I'm excited to talk about all of it right here with you and with the other fine folks here at TSS. All right. Well, Joe Lowry, I feel the same. Thank you for taking the time to chat with me today. Listeners, thank you so much for listening, and we will be back with you again many more times this week. 